Greetings all, and welcome to the podcast, Why Are You Sober? I'm Sam, a sober addict and the host, and I'm so glad you're here. Why Are You Sober is a space where sober addicts come to share their stories of addiction, where it led them, how they got sober, and then why they continue to choose sobriety today. The goal is just to spread some experience, strength, and hope to others, and particularly those who might be suffering. If you are a sober addict, I welcome you to come on and share your story. You never know who might be listening and who your story might help. Or if you're someone struggling with addiction and need some help or have questions, please feel free to reach out. You can reach me through my website, whyareyousober.org, or my email, which is sam at whyareyousober.org. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So last week, we got to hear the story of my friend, Melissa. And I thank everyone for their comments and thoughts and questions as always. Uh, One fun uh, fact about that episode. So when we were recording it, she referred to her boyfriend, who is now her fiance. So that happened about a week after we we recorded that episode. So congratulations to Melissa and her new fiance. And I wish you guys all the best. So this week, we are hearing from my friend, uh, Amanda. Amanda was the chair of the very first meeting that I ever went to. I adore her so much. She has an amazing story. Um, So I welcome you all to sit back and enjoy. Um, There was a little bit of technical difficulties at the very beginning, which is all my fault. So we missed just a couple moments of her story. Um, Those were just her sharing that she started her, her addiction really started back when she was in um, early, like late middle school, early high school and uh, started with her parents having a liquor cabinet that she had availability to. Um, so the story will pick up from there. And But before we get started, I just want to send us out with a serenity prayer. So, good and gracious friend, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Today, and I wonder what it's going to taste like, and I wonder how it's going to make me feel. And maybe if I made it this way a little bit different, I would get a different feeling. Or so I guess that's kind of when my fascination and my relationship began with alcohol was, I would say, definitely around 13. So um, and then through high school, I mean, I was uh, most high school kids trying everything. Uh, Alcohol was still my favorite. And um then when I got done with high school and started into college is when I became a lot more social. So mm-hmm. um, then I felt like, oh, so I'm not now just drinking at home after school and at parties on the weekends. Now, now I'm in, I mean, I'm in college. I can drink whenever I want. I have my own apartment um, and I got a job, you know, as a waitress uh, before I was 21 in a restaurant. So we, we actually, in South Carolina, you can be 18 years old to serve alcohol. You just can't drink it. And uh, I just remember the every bar that I worked at or rest, well, restaurant that I worked at up until I was 21, um, the managers never cared if we drank after work or if we drank while we were working. So oh, Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I do Definitely remember, a different time. <laughs> yeah, right? So I do remember a lot of times, you know, going to class in the morning, I was always responsible with college, but going to class in the morning and then working at the restaurant and then we would close around nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, then we were able to drink as we were closing out. And then I just remember that 
it would just carry on. Like we would then go hit bars. Cause I had a, I had a fake ID. I was in college and then, um, I was, uh, I guess I was functioning at that time. Cause I wasn't really thinking about how much I was drinking and what I was drinking. I just knew I was drinking all the time. And I used to make jokes that I was on a liquid diet, but it really wasn't a joke at the time because my poor little body, what I put it through through college was, was not good. <laughs> I was always sick and I had never figured, could never figure out why my immune system was so low. And, um, because I, I mean, I was drinking all the time and, uh, I remember one time I had a bladder infection cause I had had a, a, a spell where I was really dehydrated and I had also had a bladder infection. So I remember the doctor was like, no alcohol, take these antibiotics, no alcohol, you know, drink lots of water, drink plenty of Gatorade fluids. You just can't drink while you're on these antibiotics. And I remember going to work one night and the girl was like, yeah, but if you do cranberry and vodka, that doesn't count. <laughs> it, it doesn't count. Of course so not. I actually, of course not. Yeah, I actually believed this person. I was like, okay. So, and then she was like, and if you double up on the antibiotic, you'll, you know, it'll be stronger. So, I mean, these are the stupid things I was doing while I was in while I was in college, just because I wasn't thinking, I was paying my bills, I was going to school, I was making decent grades. Um, and I just wanted, I don't know, I just wanted to drink, I wanted to hang out. So it wasn't really, it didn't start really interrupting my life until my 20s, when I came down to Florida for an internship, because I was in theater in college. And you know, theater mm -hmm. people, um, I was a techie, so I was costume design. So we drank, I mean, we drank after hours. It was, especially on opening night and um, the rehearsal shows, we would go out and drink after like all the tech nights were done. Cause you know, those are 12 hour days. Yeah. And then, um, so I never really thought, really never too much thought about it until I got an internship down here in Florida. And I noticed that um, while I was doing my internship, I was 27 years old and oh, by the way, it took me forever to get my undergrad because <laughs> I would, I would take as little classes as I could to maintain um, the money coming in for my family to keep paying for college and working to keep paying for my partying. So, so it took me a lot longer. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, that's what I remember calling, um, go, uh, taking the scenic route through college. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Taking that extra fifth or sixth year was that's what we yeah. called them. We called those people they were taking the scenic route. I was on the scenic route for quite a long time. I think I think my parents are pretty sick of it. When I when I came to Florida at twenty seven, they were like, Okay, that's it. You gotta do this internship <laughs> for a year and you gotta graduate. You're twenty seven years old. You've been going to college for nine years. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I came down to Florida to do an internship for my final 38 credit hours of, um, of college. I got to do my last year of coursework down here and do an internship with, um, a school. Uh, actually it's, it's a state college now. It was a tech college at the time. And they had me come down as the costume design intern. And my responsibilities were not only producing, the costumes for all the shows that they did, but also having kids come in during what they called lab hours and the students would participate in making the stuff for the shows, kind of like what I did in undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, so I noticed then 
that I was doing 10 and 12 hour days and going back to my apartment and drinking, you know, and I never really thought too much about it until one of my roommates at the time was like, Hey, if you ever just come home one night and not had a drink. And, uh, I, I said, well, yeah, I, I do it all the time. And they're like, no, you don't <laughs> like you all, you always drink. And I was so delusional that I was like, no, wait a second. I have stayed home at night and not drank. And they're like, no, you've always either got a beer or a wine, a glass of wine. I wasn't much of a hard liquor drinker. As I got older, I switched more to beer and wine. And then, um, also cause it was cheaper. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, probably halfway through that year, uh, I started getting really sick a lot cause I wasn't sleeping. I was working long hours. I was trying to finish, um, my coursework that I had to do. And I noticed that my body wasn't, I guess, process metabolizing the alcoholic it used to. And I noticed that it was taking me longer to get over hangovers and longer to feel okay the next day. So right around the time of 28, 20, but no, that, yeah. Cause at the second part of the year, I was 28. That was around the time I noticed that I was taking a drink in the morning. Mm-hmm. If I was hung over and I had to work the next day, especially at the theater and I had to go to class, I would definitely um, chug a glass of wine in the morning to take the edge off. And then I would brush my teeth and then have my morning coffee. Mm. So, and then that's kind of when I noticed the, the, that's when I really noticed that. And then after that, um, I moved to West Palm after I finished my internship and I still didn't graduate. So I still (laughs) owed. Yeah. I still owed like, um, I think it was three classes because I was drinking so much during my internship and actually it it was not just the drinking, but it was the workload too. It was just too much for one person. And honestly, I should have stood up and said, Hey, this is too much, you know, I, but I didn't, I didn't have any boundaries back then because I thought that I was, um, I thought I could do anything. Yeah. I was very headstrong back then, but, um, so when I moved to West Palm, I, I went back to something I always knew, which was working in restaurants. <clears throat> and then I started working in bars because down in West Palm Beach, uh, you can make a lot of money, you know, waitressing at a bar or bartending, um, just the nightlife in general. You can make a lot of money. Oh, yeah. I'm so sure. I, I started doing that when I finished the internship because I just needed a break. I was like, OK, I need a break. And my parents were like, that's it. We're not paying for any more school. So I was like, well, I have to take these courses. <laughs> so I was like, well, what can I do where I can pay my rent? I can live by myself. I can pay for my college and I can have, you know, a lenient schedule to where I can actually focus and finish. And that's why I just went back to what I knew when I was younger, which was the restaurant and bar industry. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's what I started doing while I was finishing finishing everything. And then, um, I just, Oh, I don't know. I was, I just kept getting off track. Like I would take a class and I would get to that halfway mark where you could take it and then drop it if you needed to, before you got the the fail, you would get the the W or the WF. Yeah. The withdrawal. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So um, I, it took me forever to finish those last three courses. I finally got my degree um, right around the time I was 29 years old. So it took so long just to get my bachelor's degree. And I would make every excuse in the book why I wasn't finished. And the main common denominator was I was, I was an alcoholic and I just wouldn't admit it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then probably around, I got into a car accident when I was um, 30, 31 and believe it or not, I had gone out the night before I had been drinking. I had stayed at a friend's house. I woke up and I had to go to work the next morning because I did it this by this time I had gotten I was still working in the evenings sometimes at the bars and the restaurants. But I, I got a day job because I wanted to feel like I was an adult and um, that I wasn't wasting my life away. So I got a part time day job working for an architect and I had to be there at eight o'clock in the mornings. So I was still trying to pull these same hours that I was pulling when I was 19 and 20 years old, where I would work during the day or go to class during the day and then go work and drink all night. Cause I could drink at my job and then try to get up and do it all over again. And then maybe do an after party after. And that's when I woke up that morning and I took a shot of alcohol because the, they didn't have any more beer and wine. And this is when I noticed that I started getting more into hard liquor. So I remember it was a Captain Morgan, shot of Captain Morgan. And I took a shot of Captain Morgan just to take the edge off so I could get up and get ready to, because I still had to go to my apartment and get dressed and go to work. And I was already running late. And I got in a car accident with a semi and thank God it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And I remember I was sitting on the guardrail in the middle of uh, I-95. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, and they had me, They they I got out of the car, and they had me sitting on the side of the guardrail because they thought I had broken my ankle, but I could still walk on it. And the police officer was like, well, before you leave, let me just, because I, I refused to go to the hospital because I knew. I was like, if they go to the hospital, they can they can draw my blood. And I'll get a DUI. So I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I remember I was calling my boyfriend at the time. I was like, you got to come get me. And I had a cell phone back then. And he was, I was like, I'm on I-95. I got in a really bad accident. I think my car is totaled. And you have to come and get me because I, I have to leave. Like, I got to get out of here. So they, they let me leave. The tow truck came and got my car. And I remember that he took me home to my apartment at the time. And the first thing I did when I got in from that accident is I was looking for any alcohol that I had in the house because I had really bad anxiety from feeling like I was about to go to jail. Yeah. Thank God I didn't. And then I had, I was sick cause I was hung over. And the good news was I didn't have to go to work that day. Like I had a valid excuse this time, you yeah. know, Hey, I got in a car accident. Um, so that's when I noticed that the drinking went from just, it's like a switch flipped. It's like, then it went from, okay, I'll just take a shot in the morning to feel okay to now I'm going to drink in the morning and then it's going to end up, I'm going to go on benders. And I became, and then I knew I had a problem. Then I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to admit I'm an alcoholic because nobody does this. This isn't normal. And then I remember I would get 
sober for a few days, I would have to go to my doctor because um, my blood pressure would go through the roof. I would have withdrawals. And they kept saying, you know, you really need to go to rehab. And I'm no, 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 I'm going to do this on my own. So I would get sober for about, I'd say two weeks at a time. And then I would have that one drink and then it would turn into a three to four day bender. Mm-hmm. And, and then after that, then, you know, then I started adding in the party favors. Then I started adding in the substances that allowed me to stay awake so I could consume more. And then I started adding the substances that would allow me to sleep if I got too wound up. So it just became like a, this vicious cycle. And then I would clean up. I started going to AA meetings and then um, I would go to them for a few days and then I would get bored with them. Like, this isn't for me. I knew I had a problem and I knew the message that they were, were trying to give me was what I needed, but it, it bored the hell out of me. Oh yeah. Me too. Um, like my first, I remember, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I still consider myself a one chip wonder because I only ever got one white chip, which was at, the 301 house but yeah um but i had gone to meetings before that but i just never picked up a chip because i was like i never admitted to anyone there that i was an alcoholic i just sat there and i was like i don't know but yeah i mean i just i wasn't <laughs> into it at that point yet you kind of just do you ever did you ever feel like when you went like you kind of went like okay i know i need to be here but i don't really want to be here oh yeah oh 100 percent. i remember sitting there being like <laughs> i know i need to be here this sucks and I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, it just didn't, I don't, it just didn't click with me. It until, you know, what happened was I went to a speaker meeting one day because I was going to, I was, I wasn't, I didn't have somebody tell me what meetings I need to go to. They just said, you just need to go to AA. And I thought the meeting that I would go to, it was like a five thirty meeting because I was able to hit it after work and then be able to still make, my shift at the bar by seven o'clock. So I would go to this five, five thirty meeting and it was the same meeting. It was as Bill sees it. So I didn't know that it was, I didn't know it was like, there was different types of meetings. Yes. So, oh yes. Yeah. 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 And that's why I was like, this is boring as hell. And then I remember one night I was working and I was this, I was, wasn't drinking. And this guy that had known me as a drinker was like, Hey, you don't want to drink. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm trying to cut back. And and he was like, are you sure? And I was like, and I was real adamant about not drinking. So I think he kind of recognized that maybe I was on the wagon because I was an alcoholic and not because I just wasn't drinking. Yeah. And he was like, so are you a friend of Bill? And when I heard that, because I remember that was like one of the code words, and I was like, oh, are you, are you in recovery too? And I looked over and I noticed he was drinking an O'Doul's. Mm. And I was like, huh. I said, aren't you kind of defeating the purpose though? I said, it's a non-alcoholic beer, but it still has alcohol in it. You know that, right? And he was like, I'm not drinking it. It's just sitting here on the bar. He said, so every time I'm tempted to drink it, all I do is I look at it and I order a club soda. So it's like he it kind of made me laugh. Cause I was like, so it's like sitting there hanging out with the devil. I, I don't get it. Like yeah, why just... literally I'm like, well, I, I yeah. would not, I would not do temptation like that personally. Like, no. I don't trust myself <laughs> enough for that. Like at all, like in any way, shape or form. And I think this, I honestly think this person was an adrenaline junkie because 
um, he was known to push the boundaries with other things in his life. And it wasn't just that, you know, it was other things too. Cause I did get to know this person and it was, it was really funny because that night he said to me, he's like, you go into the wrong meeting. If that meeting is not speaking to you, go to a different meeting. And I was like, what do you mean? There's different meetings. And he's like, yeah, you need to go to a speaker meeting. Awesome. So I found, awesome. yeah, I found a speaker meeting and it was actually a dual speaker meeting where the person, there was two people up on the um, podium. It was um, the addict and then it was the family member of the addict. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So they, the addict told their story first and then the family member or whoever was, you know, partner or whatever, whoever was with them or it was sometimes it was even somebody's uh, best friend you know? Mm. Um, so they would tell their side of the story and it, that meeting just kind of hooked me. And then after that, I remember then it, the light bulb went off and I was like, Oh, okay. So I said, wow, they're telling my story. And then hearing the other person speak, cause I remember it was a, a daughter was telling and her mother was the one that was, um, she was in Al-Anon and she was telling her side of her daughter's addiction. And I remember watching the pain in that woman's eyes about what she went through with her child. And that kind of was another wake up call. Cause I, I remember thinking for the first time in my life, that was the first time that I wasn't so selfish, you mm. know? Mm. Um, and then I said, like, wow, I'm really, this isn't just hurting me. I'm really hurting somebody. So yeah. That's when like I got the light, but that's, it didn't stop there though. The problem was, is I wanted it. I just, I couldn't grab it. Like I felt like I would get a hold of sobriety for a few days and then it would come right out from under me and it would just my, it's like my hand would let go of it. Mm. Um, so it was hard for me to maintain sobriety. I even went through detox centers where I would Oh, I need to go somewhere to dry out. I would do that. Um, and then I would try to do AA instead of going into an inpatient treatment facility. And then I even went into an inpatient treatment facility for six weeks. Um, I, I maintained, I was able to have 30 days sobriety when I got out of there and I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I was going to meetings. I was, you know, I got a sponsor I was reading my big book every day. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And after 30 days, I still picked up. Mm. And that's when I became, that's when it went from, I would socially drink to now I was drinking by myself and I was hiding it because if my partner at the time knew or my family at the time knew they would, they would drop me. So my partner at the time traveled and still does travel for a living. So I was like, well, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to schedule my time. And I thought it was my me time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I deserve this. I've worked hard for this. This is my treat. It's my me time. And, um, and then what would happen is I would, I would plan to only have like one bottle of wine and it would turn into a whole bender for like three to four days. He would come home, find like bottles everywhere, find me passed out somewhere on the floor, on the couch. Oh, and yeah. then oh, yeah. the, the vicious cycle, the codependency cycle started. And then it was just, 
you know, he would help get me cleaned up, get me sober, get me to the doctor, get the medication I needed to sober me up, um, to keep me from having, you know, really bad high blood pressure. Cause you can, you know, with withdrawals, you can, you can die if you're not careful. Yeah. And, um, so we would go through that vicious cycle. We must've done the dance for, for, with that for like two years. And then finally he had gotten to a point where, you know, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't working anymore. Um, and I was, I was tired. I was really sick and tired of, of being an addict. I was just tired of it. You were sick and not tired only... of being sick and tired. Yes. <laughs> yes. So then I, that's when I, um, I was very hardcore about getting sober. Like I was going to meetings, I had a sponsor, but then I would have slips. I would have relapses and, and the, you know, there was even one time when I had a relapse and, uh, he had come home, my husband, he's my husband now, but he had come home early from a trip and he found me passed out. And I, when I did wake up, um, I had really bad withdrawals. Like I was, I was shaky. I mm. was sweating. I had anxiety. I was like, I've got to get a drink. This feels horrible. So I had a stash hidden. So when that would happen and he found it and he had found it before I woke up and he had dumped everything out. Mm. So that was for me like sheer terror. I was like, no, that's going to help me. Like keep me from going through withdrawals. And he was like, no, you're done. You were done. This is over. You're done. And I remember he took my car keys. He took everything. So I got on my bike and I am not lying to you. <laughs> this door was a mile and a half down the street. I got on my bike and I started pedaling the whole way to the store. Oh my gosh. And I, I remember when I got to the store, it was, um, it was a liquor store and I went in and I, I bought small mini bottles so I could hide them on me and sneak back in the house. <laughs> and, <laughs> and as soon as I got home back on the bike, which he was scared, he was like, I thought you were going to get a DUI or something. You were going to get hit by a car. He was like, but I had to let you do what you needed to do. And I remember I got, <laughs> I got home and, and I had stopped halfway to take one of the shots because I, I had to, or I couldn't get my hands to stop shaking. And I remember I felt confident and I felt better by the time I got home that I was like, yeah, I can sneak this in and I'll be okay. Oh no. The second I walked through the door, he was like, okay, hand it over. Yeah, of course. Hand it over. <laughs> I know where you went. I know where you went. I know what you got. And I know you're not telling me you didn't go buy anything. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did, but I drank it on the way over. And he was like, no, no, I know you too. He was like, yeah, I know you had one when you came over. He was like, but you've got more on you. And he was like, so just hand it over. And I had him stuffed in my bra. I had him stuffed in the back of my underwear. I was so embarrassed. He took them from me, and they were little mini bottles. And um, he dumped them out in front of me, and he was like, you're done. And I was like, okay, fine. So I got sober again and then um, the vicious cycle just kept happening. And then the last time we had made a contract and I had signed it stating that if I relapsed, that was it. We were over. I had to find another place to live. Our relationship was over. Um, 
his name was on my car. He had helped me buy a car and his name was on it. And he was like, and I'm taking back the car, like all of this, like you're going to lose everything. And even my parents got in on it and said, you know, if you don't stop, we're going to disown you. We're not going to have anything to do with you. Oh, wow. And so that kept me sober for about three months. And then one day, I don't know in particular what happened. I just, I had, it was, I think it was just overwhelming emotions because I was going to meetings, working with a sponsor, but for some strange reason, I chose to drink. And when I did, I went on a bender and this time I blacked out. Like I still to this day don't remember a lot of those three days, but I consumed a lot of alcohol and then I started ingesting rubbing alcohol, I guess, because I must have ran out of alcohol. <laughs> so I don't know. Like all I know is um, when my friend came, my uh, Matt was really worried about me because I wasn't answering the phone. And then um, she came to check on me. Matt had told her where the spare key was. And when she found me, she had told Matt, she was like, there was an empty bottle of rubbing alcohol next to the bed with orange juice. And she said, when I picked up the glass of orange juice, she said, all I could smell was the rubbing alcohol in it. She was like, so I'm assuming she was ingesting it. And when she went to wake me up and roll me over, there was, I was vomiting blood all over the side of the bed. Mm. So she had gotten me dressed and taken me to the hospital. And when I was in the hospital, um, I was embarrassed. Um, I had been, I had been to that hospital numerous times, by the way, with, with acute, um, acute alcoholic, what do they call it? Acute. um, Oh, I can't think of the medical term, but anyway, I was, pretty much alcohol poisoning. Mm -hmm. So I had been there a few times with that. And um, so I was embarrassed first of all to go back to that hospital. But when I got there, I had a male nurse and he was the nicest person. And he treated me for the first time. He treated me like a human being. And I remember apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry. And he said, you're not, you, he was like, you're just sick. He's like, it's, you just, you, you've got an illness and he's like, you just have to, you have to try harder. So stop beating yourself up. And Mm -hmm. I remember that I was still throwing up because it was, it was horrible. And finally they said, you know, we're going to have to pump your stomach. And that was the first time I had ever even been in a situation where that was an option. And I were Yeah. And I remember they said, and I was like, oh, so you're going to put me under anesthesia because I'm not going to be awake for this. And they're like, yeah, you are because we, we can't put you under because we don't know what you have in your body. Yeah. And, um, so that was quite an experience. Yeah. Having my stomach pumped. And then the next thing I did is I woke up and I remember I was in ICU. Hmm. And I just remember, like, when I woke up, I I said, that's it. I said, I remember saying to God, like, either, either you, you know, you take me now, like, I'm done. Either you take me like I'm ready to go. Or, or you give help me find the strength to fight this because Mm -hmm. I'm, I can't anymore. I can't do this. 
So um, when I did get out of ICU and I was able to go to a step down unit, I remember the first thing I did was I said to the doctor was I need to go to rehab. Like, I know I need to dry out before I go, but I need to go to rehab and please don't send me home. Please send me straight from here to a rehabilitation center. Mm -hmm. I cannot go home. And so the social worker at the hospital was nice enough to work with um, my husband to help get me into a treatment center. And that time I stayed for almost um, 12 weeks. Whoa. In the center itself. Uh, yeah, I went into a treatment facility. I did the first six weeks, I did intensive inpatient. And then the final, it was like, I think it was more like 11 weeks. The, the final five weeks, I did the, um, it was considered, uh, it wasn't, you had the freedom to do things during the day. I forget what they call it. It was, um, it was like a, they considered it outpatient, but you still lived in their apartments and it was actually really nice believe it or not it was i had my own room and i had three other roommates and um but i still you know i still had a bus pick me up every day to go to the treatment center down the street where i would do all my my classes meet with my therapist do all my group sessions and then they would bring you back home at night if you went to the store they would take you but you would be supervised so kind of so, so kind of like a halfway house yeah, it was the it was the place before the halfway house because even after that I wouldn't go home. I was scared to go home. Um so I told my social worker at the rehab center like I have to go to a halfway house when I leave here. I can't go home. Okay. And at that yeah, and at that time my husband had moved to Tampa. So and he sold our house. He was like we're we're getting out of here. This is just it's too much. He got a job, a really good job opportunity. And he goes, let's just start over. But I remember saying to him before I come to Tampa, I have to do this. Like I have to fight this and I can't do it with us being in the same house right now because we were just too codependent on each other. Yeah. And, um, and I had to get better. Um, so I went and lived in a halfway house in West Palm while he was over here in Tampa and believe it or not through all this, I still had my job. Like I was so lucky that each time I'm screwed up and I had to go to rehab, they still let me keep my job. I don't, I don't know how that happened because most people I know don't get that lucky, but yeah, I know it's I crazy. Was able, isn't that crazy? <laughs> I was, so when I did go to the halfway house, I was able to pay my rent because I already had a job. And the place that I found was literally a mile down the street from my job. And then a, an AA house, like clubhouse, was another mile. So it made this perfect triangle. Like if you go to the west, one mile was um, where I would go to my meetings. And if you would go to the east, one mile, there was my, um, my job. And then all I'd have to do is go east to west to go to the meeting. So I, all I had to do was go to these three places. And right in the middle of that one mile radius of everything was a grocery store and everything that I needed. So there was for the first two months, I didn't leave that circumference of that space. Oh, yeah. Like if it I would I would be scared to I was so scared because I and I didn't I had a cell phone and I blocked a lot of people's numbers. So I, I didn't talk to any of my friends. I was barely on social media. I kind of just 
I don't want to say disappeared, but I knew that I had to, I knew that I had to get away from everything that I knew in order to focus on what I did know. And that was that I, I did know that I needed the help for, for my sobriety. Yeah. So, and I was, I was so distracted, you know, when, when my friends and I loved them to death, but it was a distraction. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Well, I mean, this is where it sounds like to me, you, especially when you said to the doctor in the hospital, like that you had to go to rehab, like this was finally the time in your life that you actually started making smart choices. Yeah. For the first time in my life. You know, but that's it. I mean, and that's something I've been discovering and talking with people and hearing their stories is that we all kind of have this moment where all of a sudden, for some reason, it finally clicked and we started making smart choices where we were like, I can't do that anymore. I have to go do this. Like, you know, yeah, that's awesome. And it, and it was all about, and you know, I learned a lot from, from that, from that experience, you know, cause the halfway house that I went to, I was the only resident in there that I was so lucky that I'd never got a DUI you know, that I never went to jail. I was very blessed. And I always was like, Oh, thank you. You know, I was very grateful that that never happened. And when I told my parents that I'm, I was going to live in a halfway house with people that had been to jail and that had actually, I, one of my roommates had spent some time in, you know, federal, federal prison. It didn't bother me. It bothered my parents. They were like, Oh my God, you, you can't go stay there. You, you don't know what, who these people are. And I'm like, they're human beings with the same sickness that I have. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was kind of, they were some of the, the most down to earth, real people that I had ever been around. And I loved that experience so much, even though at times I resented it because I, you know, even though I was paying a lot in rent, cause you, you had, like you pay weekly there for rent even though I was paying a lot for rent, I had to go to a meeting every day, even though I was working a full-time job, she still made you go to a meeting a day. If you weren't working, you had to do two meetings a day. And when I got home, I had chores. Of course. Like I, I literally had to, like, I felt like I was back in, in, um, when I was 13 years old and my parents gave me a list of all my chores and the chores were assigned to us. Like, I mean, you could get something gross, like cleaning the toilets or, cleaning the stove like to me the stove was the worst i was like i'll do anything just don't make me clean the stove in the microwave because <laughs> <laughs> it was just it to me it just grossed me out um but i remember my dad used to when he would call me he would he would say what are you doing and i would say oh well i'm sweeping the floor or i'm mopping the floor and he so he started calling me cinderella at that time because <laughs> he said that it just cracked him up because He's like, for the first time in my life, he had said, he, he's like, you were taking responsibility and you were actually doing things that adults that you should have been doing from the time that you moved out on your own. But I remember we had white floors in this, in this halfway house and it used to piss me off when I would sweep and mop and then somebody would come in and not take their shoes off and walk across it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh yeah. But I remember it was just so minor because it was like, okay, so I just have to sweep it or mop it again. But it was just little things like that. And um, that part of my life was was really just, for me, it was an eye-opener. I got to see how a lot of people aren't so fortunate. And that was what kept me going 
And then at the time it came around the first of the, it came around the end of the year that year. And it's just something inside of me clicked and said, okay, it's time for you to leave. I had been there for almost, I want to say three or four months. I thought it was six months, but I think it was more like three or four months. Maybe it was a little bit longer. Um, anyway, long story short, it, there was just a day when it came in it, and it clicked to, um, it's time for the next step of my journey. And that's when I had called my husband. I was like, okay, I'm ready. Come get me. And, um, and then I moved to Tampa and then I, I had to find a new, a new home, like a new meeting house, a new sponsor. So, and I did immediately when I got here, I looked for a new AA house. I looked for a new sponsor. I started meeting people in the program because I didn't know anybody here in Tampa. And then, um, and that's how I ended up uh, eventually at our old home group was through just, I kept exploring and our old home group was by where I worked. So it was, it was easy. And then, and also I got to smoke, like I was still smoking then. So it was like, oh, I want a place where I could smoke and this place you could smoke inside, which at the time I loved. Now I, now I can't stand the smell of cigarette smoke. Oh, <laughs> so. I know. Yeah. Me too now. Yeah. Now I'm like, Oh God, please. No. Like, yeah. Now I'm like, Ugh, yep. Ugh. Oh yeah. And it, it just, I, and then, you know, as you progress more in your recovery, then you're like, I can't believe I used to do some of the stupid things I used to do. Even, even if it's not ingesting something in my body, it's the way I behaved or reacted. And then, um, as far like, I still kept going to meetings and stuff, but after a while, uh, I just kind of, it lost the, um, I don't want to say the essence, but I just kept feeling like, okay, I'm hearing the same story. I'm all about recovery. I'm all about helping other people, but I needed to be more in an atmosphere that was more about, cause I'm really big into health and wellness. And I was like, okay, I want something a little bit more. I have all these tools that I did with uh, the 12 step program. Now, how can I, how can I clean my body and how can I get closer to, to God? Because I wanted to, to connect now in a different way. Yeah. So that's how I got back into uh, yoga and meditation. And I found a studio and I started going to the studio and I'm still, I've, so I've been there almost, six years now and <laughs> I started awesome. out as a, I know I started out as a student and now um and then I then I ended up managing it at one point but then I decided oh I don't want to I don't want to do management so then I went through the the teacher training and then I became a teacher and um and now I'm still doing more trainings so it's and it's kind of ironic because if you look at the 12 steps that we do in AA, if you go back to uh, yoga philosophy, you'll see a lot of resemblance between the 12 steps and what the philosophy teaches you. And it's kind of crazy, but um, it's all about awareness and being conscious of who you are and other people around you and that it's not just about you because at the end of the day, we're all one, mm -hmm. all of us. And what we do, every action we take, it doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody because we are all so connected. 
and we're all connected to God. And that's what I love, you know, and that's what I love about AA is it brought me back into a spiritual practice. It brought me back into a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. It brought me back into a relationship with people and Mm -hmm. it got me out of my relationship with my addiction, my demon, my devil, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So, but that's what I do now. I mean, I don't even, it's so funny because there's days where I'll go by and I don't, I know there's some people that believe that every day you should read, you know, out of your big book or every day you should read something about recovery to remind yourself that you are an alcoholic addict. And I, to me, I, I don't see it that way. I read stuff every day that's inspiring and it kind of speaks the truth that I need to my soul because when I'm in that state, that place, that feeling and that connection with God, like alcohol doesn't even come to my mind. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I, you know, yeah. and impurities don't even bring themselves up in my lives. You know, those, those opportunities that used to just come at us all the time when we first got sober to drink, when we know we shouldn't drink, those don't even come around me anymore. And it's, I find that the closer I get to God and the closer I get to my spiritual practice, I just, I just don't think about alcohol anymore. To me, it's no longer a solution. Yeah. And some days, some days I feel bad, Sam. Some days I'm like, should I be going to meetings? Should I be doing all this? And I've even gone to a therapist and said, you know, Hey, look, I feel bad. I feel like this is what I should be doing. And she's like, what works for you? because your recovery is different than somebody else's. Amen. And she said, if you find sobriety in your relationship with God and your spiritual practice, then that's your program. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and for the first time that made me feel so much at peace because there were times in the rooms where I felt like I was being judged because I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't going to enough meetings. I wasn't doing enough for the program. And I kind of started resenting it for that because, and then, you know, of course the chaos, because there's chaos in life too, but it was, yeah. I was just looking for something more. Yeah. Oh, I understand. I don't, I don't not, yeah. <laughs> I do. I get it because I mean, there, I've definitely felt the same way, especially I think lockdown COVID lockdown kind of made me wake up, especially when I was hearing about all the people who were relapsing and, having issues and how, you know, how like lockdown being isolated doesn't help anybody with an addiction. Um, Mm -mm. you know, and that, that would make me feel guilty of like, I'm not struggling, but do I need to do something? Like, should I be trying to help in some way? You know, like it really made me, (laughs) it made me go like, I feel like I need to be doing something more, (laughs) which is like, that's when I started doing, doing my readings online. Um, and I would read the AA big book and reflect on it and just post videos. Um, and people started following it and I was like, okay, well, this is cool. Um, and so now I've kind of transitioned to this. Like, I just think having a collection of varying stories of people with varying addictions could be helpful to people, you know, and then they can go back and look and be like, oh, you know what? I really connected with this person, you know, or something like, or this, this person's story sounds interesting. And I might relate to that. Kind of like you said, like when you were in that first speaker meeting and you were like, that person is telling my story. (laughs) Yes. 
you know? Yeah. And to hear, and to hear the pain from the other side, I think was a game changer for me. Definitely. Because we don't, I think sometimes we're so caught up in our own addiction, our depression, our, our own isms, our own problems that we don't realize and we don't listen enough to the people that are biased and oh. they try to stick with us the whole time. But it's, it's just, it, I just never realized how much pain it causes people until I saw that. And then actually hearing, you know, sometimes my husband will openly talk about how bad it hurt him and just, he had to go through um, some form of counseling too, to cope with, the anger, the resentment, the, yeah. you know, cause he, he's not one, he's, he's a normie, but it's, he's a good normie because he doesn't drink, like he doesn't even want to drink. Yep. He, and he's been awesome. I think that's another thing too, is just making sure that your support system around you is strong, you know, and yeah, being oh, grateful yeah. for that. Yeah. And very similarly, my husband, um, he just, he could drink, but he just chooses not to. And he just doesn't care to like he, and he tells people, he'll tell people flat out. They'll be like, are you in sobriety too? He's like, no, I'm just dry. He's like, I just, I don't, I just don't want to drink. And I, you know, that's, Aww. that's such a gift for me. Like, it's just like, yes. um, you know, to have somebody like that. So I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. So Amanda, this is the yes. name of the podcast, but why are you sober? Why am I sober? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. What keeps you sober today? Why do you choose to still stay sober? Wow. That's such a deep question. <laughs> um, I choose to be sober just because I love life. Mm -hmm. I just, I love, I just love being, just, I can't describe, I think I lost so much time in my addiction that now that I'm starting to see through a clear glass and how life could be, it's just amazing that I never went back and I don't ever plan to go back. So, Amen. but I'm all, but I'm also sober too. Cause I want to, I, I do want to help people. I want to help people connect back to their spiritual path and to their bodies, you know, cause I feel like a lot of times we go through so many struggles growing up and they affect us in a way that when we do flip that switch and we don't have the tools to handle when that happens, I want to be able to help people so they don't have to go through what I went through and they don't have to hurt, hurt their families the way that, you know, the way that we did that we hurt ours. So Amen. Or they can stop hurting their families like we've all done. Yes. Yes. Because they know that they can reach <laughs> out to someone. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I, like I've been hearing from people, it really sounds like you stay sober so that you can enjoy life and enjoy people and enjoy all the things that life has to offer. Yes. That's I, one I, of the... I like to say yeah. that I like to experience the lows so that I can also experience the highs. Oh, I like that. So, I like that a lot. You know, because I know because you know when I was drinking, I wasn't I wasn't experiencing anything. I wasn't experiencing lows or highs, and when I was experiencing lows, they were really low. <laughs> you were numb. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, thank you so much for doing this. Welcome. I thank you for asking me. I was I was honored and then I was really nervous. I was like, oh my God, I haven't told my story in so long. And um I just didn't want to, you know, I was like, oh, I don't want to go to the dark side, but you know, it doesn't you don't always have to go to the dark side to tell your story. You don't, but also, you know, like um in my church we were just talking about the Great Commission. Um, about mm-hmm. going out and reaping the harvest and telling the good news. And I was like, well, oh, that's really kind of like the 12th step. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and I was sharing that with my, with my staff at my meeting. And I said, you know, I said, I, I was thinking about how in, in sharing the good news of my life, I also have to share where I came from so that people can understand why I have good news. And so we sometimes have to relive a little bit of our pain and emotion that we went through in order to spread the good news. But I, you know, I said, but the thing is that now we know that we're not alone when we have to do that. We're not alone. We're, we we have our higher power. We have the people behind us and we can go out and spread good news. And, you know, I don't know. Yes. No, I think that's great. Well, thank you all for listening to, Amanda's story. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Obviously, next week we're going to be hearing from my friend Jessica. I can't wait to share her story with you. This has just been so much fun for me. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you're a sober addict, as always, and you would like to come on and tell your story, I would love that. Or if you have questions or are looking for help, reach out too. You can find me at my website, whyareyousober.org, or email me at sam at whyareyousober.org. You can also find me on social media like Facebook and Instagram. And with that, I hope you all have a wonderful week. And until next time, I am wishing you all peace, love, and a whole lot of joy. 